Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 38 of Three Course Politics. I'm Hills, and Josh is not with us today. He is all good. He is just very busy. But we have a very special guest for you today. Uh, you may know him by hearing his music throughout the podcast. We have my own brother, is Brett Hillsberg. He produces the music for our podcast, uh, the intro and the outro music, that is. And he has his very own podcast himself called Leftward Expansion, which you can find on Spotify, Apple Music, Google Podcasts, any of your podcast app. It is called Leftward Expansion, and it is all about the Democratic Party, why it can't seem to get in front of itself, and what Democrats need to do to actually win and stay in power. So, Brett, welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt. Very happy to be here. Very grateful for all the Three Course Politics listeners out there. I appreciate all of you. Do you want to say a little bit about your show? Sure. Leftward Expansion is a podcast about the Democratic Party and how it could do better in winning elections. As you know and agree with, the Democratic Party is the better of the two parties in the American political system. However, it always seems to underperform every single time. Even during a landslide election, like in 2008, we still weren't able to hold on to power for very long after. This is a problem that the Democratic Party really needs to solve because geographic distribution of our population is only going to make it work. We win elections and then we lose them right away. We never have lasting power like the Republicans do. And that's a big problem for a lot of reasons. Thank you for being on the show today. Looking forward to uh, talking about all the stuff we have to talk about. And today's, on today's pod, your appetizer is going to be about HR1. So I don't know if you heard about this, but the House of Representatives just passed HR1, which is all about voting rights. Uh, typically, HR1 is the name of a piece of legislation that is priority, that's very important. So we're going to talk all about what that is and what it means. The entree is going to be all about the filibuster. Pros, cons, what it is, what to do about it, when should we get rid of it, why do we need to get rid of it, <laughs> should we get rid of it. Your side dish is going to be the vaccination rates. Vaccinations are up, and we're going to tell you why that's a good thing. And your dessert, uh, initially I was thinking, well, maybe we should talk about Trump's taxes because he seems pretty screwed. But the American Rescue Plan just passed the Senate. It's got to go to conference in the House. But it's going to pass, and Biden is going to sign the bill, and we're going to talk briefly about why that is such a wonderful, wonderful thing. Brett, you have any thoughts? Where do I start? That's a lot to begin with. Last thing is, have you subscribed to Three Course Politics? If you're just listening and you've heard a few episodes, you're not sure, give us a subscribe. See if you love it. Um, we ho I think you will, and we hope you do. Um, it'll help get your episodes quicker. All you have to do to wherever you're listening to your podcast. It's just click subscribe. Sometimes it's a swipe left or right, sometimes on the website. And if you love listening to us, please leave us a written review. If we get five or more reviews, it will make the show turn up for more and more folks. So please write something nice if you really like listening to us. And if you don't, that's okay too. Uh, just, you know, <laughs> be as nice as you can. With that, here is your pre-dinner shot. All right, your pre-dinner shot today. I didn't. I have heard about this throughout all of the legislation that's going through the House and the Senate. You know what is reconciliation, all that stuff. But what is the Bird Rule? So this is part of the reconciliation process. But what is the Bird Rule? 
We can, we'll give you the answer at the end of the show, but if you want to look it up in the meantime, that's, that's up to you. Brett, do you have any thoughts on the bird rule without giving the answer away? My only thoughts is that the bird rule is inefficient and it's a really bad way to run a government. Well, the guy who wrote it was a former KKK member. So, you know, maybe that's... <laughs> he redeemed himself. Give him, some, give him some credit. He redeemed himself. At the end of his life. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that is your question today. It is relevant because we were talking about legislation up and down the pod. So we'll give you the answer at the end of the show. And coming up next is all about HR1. Welcome to your appetizer today. And we are talking all about HR1. So HR1, every Congress, they have, you know, Congress resets and they have a new set of laws. Um, And typically HR1 is designated for the most important piece of legislation in that Congress. You know, they want to they want to really, you know, promote it. It's like the first piece of legislation that passes or at least the first piece of legislation that was drafted. And H.R. 1 in the current Congress is called For the People Act of 2021. So let me take you through what the For the People Act of 2021 is and we're going to talk about it. So it's basically a comprehensive voting elections and ethics bill. Um, This is everything that we've been talking about. Uh, on the Democratic Party side, expanding voting, making it easier, putting more rules around things. And if this bill gets past the Senate, it's going to be a huge expansion of voting rights, uh, overhaul of campaign finance, and redistricting laws. So this is huge. And of course, guess who wants to stop it? The Republicans. So let me take you through quickly what it is, and we'll start discussing about it. Number one, it sets a standard of national voter registration and mail-in voting standards. As you know, in, in 2020, Every state had a different thing and a different rule around what they can and can't do. This sets a floor. So there are certain standards that states all have to abide by and some states can do more of. Um, It guarantees voters same-day registration either at early voting sites or or on election day. This is pretty huge. A lot of states have cutoffs for when voters need to vote, like uh, need to register to vote, like New York, right? You You can't do same day or at least, you know, you hadn't been able to do same day. This sets a standard for that, that you're able to do that. It expands the, you know, if you forget to vote in time, you can vote on the same day, you know, you can register to vote on the same day that you do vote, which is huge, huge. It would also limit how states purge voting rolls. And this is such a thing that Republicans use all the time to, to stop people from voting. They, oh, you haven't voted in X number of elections, so you are not registered anymore. Why do they get to decide when you get to vote? You registered once. You should be able to vote. <laughs> so that's a really good thing. Nonpartisan redistricting commissions. You know, this really takes the power out of both Democrats and Republicans to draw districts in all these weird, crazy ways that don't make sense for people who live in the states and also who keep people in power for a really long time. So this would this would create lots of different bipartisan commissions with Democrats, Republicans, and independent groups. So things can't be stacked in one way or the other. Big changes in campaign finance laws. They would require super PACs and dark money groups to disclose their donors publicly. So takes away of what dark money is. You shed some light on that. It would establish a public funding match for small dollar donations um, financed by a fee on corporations and banks. It would require Facebook and Twitter to publicly report and source the amounts of money spent on political ads on their websites. All really good things, right? More information is better. 
new ethic rules for public servants. The bill would create the first ethics code for the Supreme Court to be created within a year of passage. You know, Supreme Court justices routinely go and talk to private interest groups, which is like counterintuitive to what they're supposed to be doing. And the last two things, the bill would create more oversight on lobbyists and foreign agents. And it would also have a requirement that presidential candidates disclose their tax returns. Because guess who didn't disclose their tax returns and had massive conflicts of interest? 45. This is a huge, huge bill. So Brett, what are your thoughts on HR1? How much do you love it? And is anything missing from it? I think that, not trying to be dramatic, this is the most important piece of legislation to hit the floor of the Senate in a century. And if this manages to pass and get signed into law, this will be a boon for American democracy for a very long time to come. I cannot understate how important this is to pass. I believe it's second in priority only to getting COVID vaccinations into people's arms. Why is it so important? Because I truly believe that if Democrats do not have a fair playing field in the 2022-2024 elections, then we will be locked out of power possibly forever. Gerrymandering is an evil, evil idea that needs to stop. It's basically letting politicians choose their own voters. How is that fair? The idea of a fair election is to let people choose who they want to represent them. And if politicians get to choose their own voters based on their demographics and voting history, then how is that fair? They're basically giving themselves a free life pass to power. Yeah, I mean, as you can see, some some people in Congress, both Democrats and Republicans, have drawn into safe districts that keep them in power forever because the dem- because people in the, those districts are not going to, unless they do something terribly wrong, they're probably going to vote for the same party, right? So there are a ton of districts that are not competitive anymore. And so when you when you get more and more districts that are safer and they skew, you know, for the Republicans, if they skew Democratic or for the Democrats, if they skew Republicans, big changes are much harder to come by. You know, that's just one way of it. So having people vote and letting people vote more often is like a good thing. <laughs> it's a good you thing. You think. But you know who doesn't agree with us? Yeah, so Republicans do not agree with that. They want only certain people to vote every single time and everyone else most notably people of color other minorities uh people who live in cities they want them to vote as little as possible make it as difficult as possible for that to happen too which really i don't know how you can even call yourself a republican based on the party's political based on the political party's name how can you even call yourself a republican if you don't believe in a true republic yeah, you don't believe they, they only want certain people to vote because they are they're politically bankrupt. They're morally bankrupt to Trump's credit and maybe not credit, but his campaign got more voters of color than I think happened in quite some time. So like they can make a play for people of, of color to not just vote Democratic, but you have to allow them to vote. But they don't want to do that. Uh, yes. And just to comment on uh, what you said about Trump being able to get voter, more voters of color for any Republican in recent history, it was all basically an economic argument. The economy was very good before COVID. There were lots of jobs before COVID. Re-elect me and I'll get you back to that. It wasn't anything particularly skillful politically, I don't think. 
I think it was just basically the conservative media just saying the economy was very good. Trump's going to get the economy back to where it was. But that being said, we, we need more voices. We need more voices to be active in the United States. And if we really only have rich, white, conservative, uh, conservative people voting, that's not going to give us a national legislature or even a president that truly reflects what the country looks like. It's just the the way that we've been doing redistricting the last 10 years and up and coming now is terrible. And that needs to stop. It's very anti-democratic. And I wish that the media would call it out for what it is. It's basically faux dictatorship. Yeah, and, and Democrats do it too, which, you know, this this is good that we're actually trying to put rules on ourselves. So when I agree. When, when you hear when you hear Republicans not not like this piece of legislation that they're trying to stack the rolls, we're not. There's no voter fraud. The only voter frauds have been basically Republicans. So the actual right, of cases course. of documented voter fraud have been from more or less Republicans throughout the past decade. So so why does this matter? So we talked about it a little bit, but this bill would change the United States forever. People would actually be encouraged to vote and make it easier to vote. It might it may end the gridlock in Congress from gerrymandering to unveiling dark money. You know, if a corporation that you like, I'm just going to, you know, a corporation that you, you know, are a subscriber of or pay money to ends up putting hundreds of thousands of dollars against certain pieces of legislation and you find out about it, that's going to hurt their bottom line. And they may not do that anymore. <laughs> right. My first thought is Airbnb. Yeah. My first thought is Airbnb. They put so much money behind uh, these laws that curtail short-term rentals <laughs> right right they want as much or they want as much uh, flexibility as possible for their renters to make their profits so when you when you unveil a light on something dark you know it's more information is always better but not to the corporations themselves uh it would make it easier to vote likely but not assured having dems win you know for maybe some time for until the republicans can figure out how to actually run an inclusive campaign based on their values and principles, <laughs> which they have very little of at the moment. And it would stop the GOP from turning the U.S. into a, in a liberal democracy. And in a liberal democracy are basically faux democracies. Just look at Hungary, right? One party has been in control of power for about a decade, and they've destroyed the institutions of democracy in Hungary. The, the Supreme Court lets the majority party do whatever it wants, and they just change the rules to benefit themselves. So we're we're preventing that from happening because at the end of the day, even if the voters decide against what I believe in and what you believe in, Brett, the end of the day is more people voting and voting in a night in a, in a safe and legal way is always better. Right, of course. And I just want to add on to that: if Democrats lose because they screwed up politically, I think that's more than welcomed. But the thing is, at this point, we are at a complete disadvantage, more so than the Constitution allowed northern states to be at in the first place. We are gerrymandered out of many districts that we should be competitive in. And the House of Representatives was supposed to be the people's house that gives more populated states more political power, whereas it's truly become something not even that it's more like who draws the most gerrymandered districts gets the most power. I think of Pennsylvania. They 
are a fairly purple state, even slightly blue, at least back in the time of redistricting in 2010. And the Republicans drew those districts to make it almost all Republican seats. It just did not reflect the state at all. Yeah, wouldn't it be great if during redistricting, and yes, this goes for Democrats too, but like Texas, right? When they say, oh, Texas for, for the next decade is Republican because they do the, drew the districts that way. That's not a good thing. <laughs> Same thing with Democrats, right? You know, if Democrats draw districts lopsidedly and, you know, that's, that's not good for democracy. So um, this bill is monumentally important. So let's talk about what to look for next just for the last few minutes. So number one is the Senate. You know, the old saying is uh, in the House that, you know, the enemy is not the other party in the House. It's the Senate because the Senate is the equal and part of the legislative branch. This cannot pass the Senate at 50 votes. It needs at least 60 because the Republicans are going to filibuster this piece of legislation. So how will they get to 60? Will this even get to 60? It's going to need to be pared down to get to 60 votes because, unfortunately, Republicans are just stupid. Unless we make the argument politically for the, those who are inclined to support something like this, like Murkowski, Romney, Toomey, Portman. I'm just thinking of people who are retiring and or are more liberal Republicans. They need to be convinced politically that this is the right move for them. So we need to get to work. This is old-fashioned politics. So will it make it out of the Senate? We're not sure. And outside groups, obviously, as we just talked about, this legislation puts a spotlight on corporations, big wealthy donors, and they are going to spend lots and lots of money to try and sink this bill and convince Democrats that they should never vote for this. So what, what does that spending look like? What does that lobbying look like? What does that campaign look like? If it looks close to passing, who will try and jump in to stop it? These are all big things we need to be focused about now. So how do we convince our Democrats in the Senate that this needs to pass? And how do we convince 10 Republicans to, you know, whatever changes need to be made? How do we do that and then convince them that this needs to be passed? That's what's ahead of us. Right. I just want to be clear with you. I don't think that any of the Republicans that you mentioned will, in fact, vote for this piece of legislation or any priority Biden piece of legislation. They are not going to basically lock themselves out of power by making things actually fair for Democrats. Uh, even if they're retiring, they're not going to leave their party in that manner. Of course, they're going to want to have those uh, cushy Fox News jobs as after they get out to serve as an overpaid contributor. And they're just not going to buck their own party like that. That being said, I think Democrats, or at least 48 of the 50, can be trusted to vote for this piece of legislation, but we're not going to overcome this without getting rid of the filibuster. We're not getting 10 Republican votes, and Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, as you know, are very hesitant, to put it in the least uh, forceful way, to get rid of the filibuster. And we just have to make a decision. We have to make the decision, is this more important than the filibuster? I believe it is. I believe most Senate Democrats also think it is. Don't get too far. We're going to be talking about this in just the next section. And we have an update on Manchin for that. But yes, I think generally this piece of legislation may not ever get out of the Senate unless we do something about the filibuster. But, you know, even if a little part of this piece of legislation does get passed, a little bit, in my eyes, I mean, I would rather have all of it, but we have to say, okay, is there any piece of this that can get out of the Senate? 
And then we need to work on that, right? Because I think even if we get 30% of this bill, Biden can come back again later and get the rest of the 80 or 70%. I can't do math. I don't agree with you. I don't think that we're going to get any of it at all out of the Senate. It's either going to be all or nothing. And if we're going to get, well, if we're only going to get 30% of it, I maybe, hopefully, we could even get the big changes in the campaign finance law where corporations have to disclose their donors. Maybe. But I think the most important part of it is nonpartisan redistricting commissions. And we're not getting that out. <laughs> we're not getting that out without a fight. We might as well just go for everything. I personally disagree. I think if we can get part of this bill out and into law, it's better than a zero of the bill into law. And there's no there's no there's nothing stopping us from passing it again with the rest of the stuff included and going back and doing another compromise to get more and more about it. That's how that's also that's how legislation, you know, I would rather get 100% of this passed, but I'd rather see 30% of this good law in effect than 0% of the good law in effect. That's where I think about it. I want to be clear that I don't disagree with you that I'd rather have some parts of the law go into effect than none. But I don't see where there's going to be appetite for any of this law, whereas there wouldn't be appetite for others. I think that the people who are not voting for some parts of this law wouldn't vote for any of it based on how beneficial it is for basically the Democratic Party. It makes things fair. And I don't think any Republicans, whether it's Toomey or Collins or Murkowski, anyone or Portman, if uh, since him and Toomey are retiring, I don't think that they're going to want to leave the Republican Party like that. And of course, they're thinking about their futures after politics. They're not going to vote for this. Right. I just do want to say one last thing, though. The one thing that I do think that Trump did very effectively was he put the spotlight on the people who were stopping him from doing things politically. For better or for worse, honestly, it kind of helped Democrats at times because it made him look like a fool. But when he put Republicans in the spotlight, they did not enjoy it. And I think that Biden needs to use his bully, pul his bully pulpit to do the same type of thing. Just be very forthright. These Republicans are stopping us from passing this massive voting pro-democracy legislation. Here's exactly what it would do. And they are stopping it. You know what? We don't make the case to voters in those states to put pressure on them. So I, I'd like to see more old-fashioned politicking and political pressure from the Biden team, and hopefully that comes out. But we've talked a bit about H.R. 1, and that is very ingrained with the filibuster. And we are going to bring the filibuster to you coming up next. All right, everybody, we're talking about the filibuster today for your entree. Are you very excited about it? I can't think of a more exciting topic to talk about. Woo, very exciting. Yeah. Senate procedural <laughs> rules. Woohoo. Anyway, this is a very, very important topic, and we're going to try and make it as fun for you as possible. So let's start. What is the filibuster? And of course, all of the things we've talked about are in the show notes if you want to learn more about it. So I'm going to just go over the background behind it. I'm not going to get into the weeds about it, but it started as a rules change by none other than Aaron Burr in 1806, and that rules change in the Senate, it changes the way debate is held. And it gained prominence before and after the Civil War, you know, all about slavery. The filibuster is the practice of not allowing the end of debate of a specific debate topic in the Senate, and thus 
never bringing it to a vote if debate never ends. Senators do not have to currently be present to use the filibuster. So any senator has the right to, quote, filibuster from the comfort of their offices or wherever they are and just say they don't approve of ending debate. And then you can't have a vote if debate never ends. Often, this is really just for the really big key pieces of the legislation. It's really not for every topic, although it does happen. The way to end the filibuster, so if someone says, I'm going to filibuster this, the way to end it is called cloture, or cloture. I think I pronounce it. Cloture. It's cloture. It's the end of debate rule, which requires that 60 members end vote to end debate on the topic and move on. That means that most work in the Senate, the most important pieces of stuff in the Senate, won't be able to actually go to a vote unless 60 senators agree, a two-thirds majority. And that's really hard in the U.S. Senate when there's, you know, we're split 50-50. So sometimes it's even more or less than that. So that's why every Senate seat really, really matters. And also, consequently, why so many bills get to the Senate and never see the light of day after the House passes it, especially if they're a different party, Right. Because if you have a Republican House, the Democratic Senate is never going to pass those bills. You have a Democratic House, same thing happens in the Senate. So that's why it really matters. It stops monumental legislation from being developed without being pared down. That's kind of the purpose of the Senate, because you want to really have, quote, compromise. It stops one party from controlling the debate and policy too much. It slows things down and in an ideal world would foster compromise. But now we live in the we live in 2021. It's just a roadblock. So we're going to go through the pros and cons of keeping it the way it is. But first, before we do that, Brett, do you have any broad, broad thoughts about the filibuster and how, you know, where it came from and where it is now? The filibuster was actually created by Aaron Burr as an accident. Aaron Burr did a lot of things <laughs> by accident. None of them good. He was he was not a, if you want to look up, him up, he was not a great person. Most of the founding fathers weren't as uh, amazing as we were taught they were. No, they're certainly not. So this is this is a big deal, all right, because it, it impacts basically life as we know it, because things could be passed, good or for bad, without the filibuster. So let's talk a little bit, very quickly, about the pros, the positives of keeping the filibuster the way it currently is, right? Two-thirds majority. Um, just quick note, uh, in 2013 and 2017, two changes were made to the filibuster. So in 2013, lower court judges, because Republicans never stopped filibustering all judges that Obama wanted to appoint, the Senate changed it that you just need a simple majority. Um, the filibuster no longer applies to lower court justices. Uh, and of course, in 2017, the Senate Republicans said, oh, actually, you, uh, you don't need two-thirds majority to get rid of the filibuster for a Supreme Court justice. So right now, justices, uh, both lower court and the Supreme Court, no longer have a 60-vote rule. They've all been pared down to simple majority, which is 51. So there are there have been some changes, so it's, it's repeatedly you know, chipping away at this practice. So some pros of maybe keeping it the way it is right now. It stops the GOP from ruining the country, right? Because let's say if you had a Republican House and a Republican Senate, but the Senate didn't have their two-thirds votes, they didn't have 60 votes, they wouldn't be able to pass all this really bad stuff. So it, it really protects the minority a lot of times. Uh, it, give, you know, it gives rights to the minority party, and you know, sometimes Democrats are in the majority. Minority, I'm sorry. We're in the majority sometimes, but also the minority. So it, it has that protection there. 
So that's really the most important piece of this. And it's supposed to get meaning. It's having the filibuster is supposed to provide meaningful input from the minority party to pass big legislation. Or the legislation just has to be popular enough. It doesn't work like that anymore because no one cares, right? We don't. We have cable news. We have online media. We have senators are not incentivized to compromise right now. So we don't have any of that. So, Brett, what do you think about these pros? And do you have any pros of keeping the filibuster the way it is at the moment? I mean, as you explain them, yes, you are right. The pros of the filibuster is basically a blanket of protection against Republican majorities doing whatever they want to at whatever time they want to, if as long as they hold the House, Senate, and presidency. And of course, they they will be as cruel as humanly possible. They're not going to stop if they don't have that uh, type of protection. Right. I mean, I think I think this is an important part of anything that does change with the filibuster is especially because if you're thinking about the flip side, right? Remember in 2017 when Trump and the Republic, the Trump and the Republicans owned all levels of government, the Democrats were able to stop a lot of legislation by having the filibuster. Most notably, the wall. Yeah, the wall. At the end of the day, the tax cut, the, the ACA repeal, the Affordable Care Act repeal, was done through reconciliation, but. You know, it had to be done that way because it couldn't have been done the regular way um, through through the normal process because of the filibuster. So I do think while the filibuster has a lot of really terrible stuff, I do think we need to keep this in mind before any changes are made that what's going to happen if we're in the minority and we can't control what goes through this the Senate. Right. So that's something that needs to be kept in mind. Right. And also, I want to point out I want to point out that. Many, maybe not all, but many American presidents start in their first two years with a trifecta of the Senate, the House, and the presidency together. So those first two years are going to be much more powerful on steroids without the filibuster. Exactly. And that can be for good or for worse, yeah. right? Could for you imagine or for worse? Could you imagine Trump and the Republicans having free reign to make all these changes in the law? Like that's scary. So I do think that that think that part needs to be thought through. So let's talk about some cons of keeping it the way it is right now. Uh, right, the first things that come to mind is that it stops Democrats from passing really, really meaningful legislation. Right, like HR one um, could be anything under the sun. T uh, tax increases that we need, changes to certain programs, uh, treaties that get ratified. So this really is an impediment to progress. Compromise just doesn't work anymore. There's no incentive. There's no incentives for it to work. No one is willing to do it. So it ends up just stopping the government and how we run our country. You know, other other countries that are more autocratic do things unilaterally, and this puts us behind the eight ball a lot of the times because we just don't get can't get anything done because no one wants to compromise, right? So it just ends up being a roadblock and overused and abused by most of the time Republicans. What do you think about this, Brett? I think you're absolutely right again. If uh, I mean, you have to look at the fact that while it is effective in stopping Republicans from their worst tendencies, it also stops Democrats on their best initiatives. For example, uh, for example, H.R. 1. We wouldn't be having this conversation if not for the filibuster. Well, yeah, I mean, it would have been passed. <laughs> right. Yeah, we would have we would have had same day registration. Right, exactly. And I also have to say that um, as the conservative party of keeping the status quo, the Republicans take more advantage with the filibuster than Democrats do because Democrats 
are the party of change and progressive action. That progressive action needs to be taken through legislation, whereas on the flip side, for the Republicans, their best action is to do nothing to keep the status quo. Yeah. I mean, they they benefit. I mean, you just look at um, what's a recent election that they've been rewarded at. I mean, look at look at 2010, right? Democrats passed the huge economic stimulus uh, recovery. We didn't market it very well. We didn't, you know, we didn't really break through the media there. But Republicans That's an didn't, different conversation. Right. But <laughs> at the end of the day, Republicans didn't vote for it, didn't do anything for it, and then got rewarded with the House. Right. We, we got killed. Wasn't the ACA also passed uh, in 2010? It was. It was. Yeah, it was exactly. So it was a massive backlash against the stimulus that didn't do enough and the AC and the ACA that Democrats were hesitant to campaign on. Yeah, which is which is a whole nother <laughs> whole you know, nother, nother podcast. level of idiocy. Yeah. Just yeah. Political suicide. So as you as you can see, the filibuster has crucial ways. It, it stops a lot of progress and a lot of really, really meaningful pieces of work. So there needs to be a change because I don't think this is sustainable the way it is. Well, keeping the pros of having the filibuster in mind, I think there are a couple of changes that we can make and we can go through different types of changes. And update for, for you, Brett, today, at least I think on one of the morning shows, Joe Manchin said he was open. He was open to discussions of if you're utilizing the filibuster of changing the way senators use it have them be in person if you're going to use the filibuster. I think that's tremendous progress. Yeah. For Joe Manchin, that's tremendous progress. You know, it's showing that, okay, he may not get rid of this filibuster, but the, he's looking at, okay, how can I, how can we get legislation through and how do we stop abusing this practice? So let's, let's go through, there are some Democrats that, you know, a lot of Democrats want to get rid of the filibuster for some of the reasons we just mentioned. However, Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of, of Arizona both have said they're not going to vote to get rid of the filibuster. So Democrats don't have enough votes to get rid of this rule change. And none of the Republicans are willing to do it either. However, we just mentioned Joe Manchin's willing to make some changes. And I think the way that we do this is we're never going to just get rid of it wholesale. However, we can change how it's practiced. And then I think it will then be utilized differently. And I think as well, it'll start to get us down the road of getting rid of it entirely. So here are just some ideas and we'll discuss each of them. You know, A, you can end it completely. B, you can ban the filibuster on specific motions like they did with, you know, the Supreme Court and justices. C, you can allow more options to be included in the reconciliation way of legislating, which is normally reserved for budgets and and money. D, you can reduce the acceptable uses of the filibuster, being that you can't even use it on certain things. And E, you can incentivize compromise. I don't know what that really looks like, but you can try and incentivize compromise so that if the filibuster is used, more senators get a political payout of some way if they do compromise. So, uh, Brett, do you want to go just through all these changes or do you want to do you want to just give me your thoughts on what you think needs to be done with the filibuster? Sure. Uh, I think, honestly, ideally, we should just get rid of it, but that's probably not going to happen. As you mentioned, Joe Manson, Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema are both very headstrong on not wanting to keep it for some reason. But I think that overall, if we were able to make the filibuster 
instead of a, instead of being silent, the senator actually has to go up on the dais and talk for the amount of time they want to filibuster. And at the end of their speech, or I guess whenever they have to go to the bathroom, then that's when the vote happens, or that's when the next senator goes up. Make it impossible to keep going on forever. The indefinite filibuster is what is the massive problem. Yeah, kind of like West Wing, right? Have you seen that episode of West Wing? No, I haven't. I never finished that series. Anyway, uh, there's an episode of West Wing, which is a great TV show, by the way. And they make the senators, like, do an all-night filibuster where they talk all night. And Democrats have tried to do that a couple of times, but it's just a a publicity stunt. Anyway, so, Brett, let me ask you a question about the filibuster, because this is what I'm really... I want to be on the side of getting rid of the filibuster. I really do. But what happens... Well, if you get rid of everything entirely with the filibuster, right, you just get rid of the rule completely. What happens when Republicans get all the levels of government or they at least get a simple majority in the Senate and they have the House and the presidency and then there's no rules on what laws they can and cannot pass? So what happens then? Like, is that That's my thing of like, where is the guardrail for that? Well, in reality, there isn't a guardrail because, as you remember, in 2017, Trump and the Republicans had all three have all three uh, chambers. They had the presidency, they had the Senate, and they had the House. So they did whatever they wanted to do, regardless of the filibuster. They pa- they passed tax cuts through budget reconciliation, and they also tried to. Uh, repeal the ACA and replace it with a woefully inefficient version of a healthcare bill through budget reconciliation. The only reason that they did not do so was because at the last minute, John McCain voted no on the healthcare bill. So it's not like they truly needed to get rid of the filibuster in order to do these things anyway. It's just that they would have failed otherwise. If they truly needed to get rid of the filibuster, I wholly believe that they would have done so. Mitch McConnell would not let any Senate procedural rules stand in the way of his legislative agenda. You make a good point that they didn't need to in 2017, but I'm just a little nervous. You know, like, I know McConnell won't be around forever, but there'll be another Republican who maybe isn't that smart as him, but who may try and do it. So I don't know, just getting rid of the filibuster completely makes me nervous because Democrats will have a time when we are not in the Majority, and we may have a time where even in the in the my, far minority, like or we well, lost listen. a lot more seats, so it makes me nervous. Well, yes, that might be true, but listen. So let's just say hypothetically, tomorrow Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema changes their mind, change their minds, and they decide let's get rid of the filibuster. Every Democrat says, "Okay, perfect. We get rid of it. Pass HR one tomorrow." It makes the electoral system a lot more fair, so we're less likely to lose a great amount of House seats in the future, and maybe even keep some Senate seats or gain some Senate seats because more people are going to be voting. Then we have a lot more chances of keeping that political power in the first place. And if so, you know what? That's democracy. If we're going to be voted out of power because Democrats screwed up and couldn't maintain that level of that level of political power, then that's what it is. But at least I want to at least I want to fight the battle with all of our guns drawn. 
make sure that there is nothing spared. And if we still lose, then we still lose. That's fair. I guess uh, I don't have a lot of confidence in our in our way to draw guns on this. So it neither, makes me neither nervous. Neither do I. Yeah, yeah. Neither but, do I. I think the Democrats are very incompetent at marketing themselves politically. But that being said, we're not going to get any better at this until we pass a legislation that allows our elections to be more fair. And that is my saving grace. If we can make sure that elections are fair and that the, di that the districts that we're voting in are not completely gerrymandered to hell, then we have a better shot of retaining political power than we would if we didn't do anything at all. That's fair. The ends justify the means and the means of, uh, of having a fairer, freer system. Um, and hopefully none of, that, none of that bill gets tied up in courts, although it will. Um, I think I would personally be, you know, putting a lot of strict rules around the filibuster, right? Paring it back a lot, making different acceptable use cases for it. Um, also making different requirements if you're using it, like you have to be present. You have to actually show the effort that you really don't want to end debate. And it can only be used in certain circumstances. Because of the way it is right now, I agree with you. It's not sustainable. It really, I mean, it, it may suck if we're on the other side of the this this, you know, the majority. But like... And we the will way be eventually. It, we will be. And but you know what? The way it is right now, I think there is a way to protect the minority party, or at least giving them a voice. But you need there needs to be a lot more effort on the minority party because right now the minority has a lot more power than the majority. And I don't think that's actually fair. I think you can keep the way the Senate you can keep the aspects of the Senate, which actually with revamping them to the twenty first century. And I also think that the Senate can get creative of incentivizing compromise, right? I don't know what that means. <laughs> I don't, I'm, not, I'm not in charge. But I think you can incentivize compromise somehow. So I would totally like to see the filibuster pair it back and put in specific use cases because right now it's just being used and abused. Right. And I agree with you that I would like to see the filibuster cut back more. I would like to see the filibuster cut back and Maybe, hopefully, Republicans will learn good faith and work like that. But that, uh, that's just not reality. If there's going to be a place in the Senate for the filibuster, Republicans are going to abuse it. And I think that's a good way to start by cutting it back and reducing the amount of, reducing the amount of uh, times that you can use the filibuster effectively. And if they still completely abuse the filibuster to stop Senate business, then I think it's time to think about ending it completely. Yeah. And it seems like Joe Manchin is, uh, I agree with that. And it seems like Joe Manchin is, is hopefully moving in that direction, right? Because if he, if he wants the filibuster to be done only in person, that's a huge win, right? That's, that's, and he can, he can say, Hey, I protected it, but I just changed it a little bit. I mean, that's that's right. Make these uh, 80 year olds work for it. <laughs> they have the easiest job in the world. All they all they have to do is show up in Washington if they want to. They don't even have to in the Constitution. They don't have to. They show up if they want to vote and then they go home. Make these people, if they truly feel passionate about stopping the majority's work, get up on the dais and talk for hours and hours on end. Make yeah. it uncomfortable <laughs> and difficult. Let them show their passion for and disdain for letting people actually vote in fair elections. Yep. Make, make them work for their money. I mean, like we elect them and they don't work half the time. So No, they don't. <laughs> make them do it. So uh, last thing is what to look for. We just kind of talked about it. Mansion and Cinema already said no to throwing it out, but 
how much GOP obstruction can they take, right? How much, you know, what, how, how much can they take before they change the rules? And I think it's only a matter of time. Will Dem groups get involved in pressuring them? Will Biden come in and be okay with changes to the filibuster? I think he will. I think he will. I mean, he's a man of the Senate. So I think he's not super in favor of throwing it out, but I think he will be in favor of rules changes for sure. So just let's see how this works with, with the Dem majority here, because if the Democrats all agree on it, it can be done. And I'm sure that this is, I'm sure this is happening behind closed doors, but I think Biden needs to get on the phone with Cinema and Manchin if he has not. And he needs to talk to them about exactly what is at stake and let them know if he has not already, that they are endangering their own majority status in 2022. Historically, presidential um, first midterms for new presidents are not good. But Biden has the great opportunity of being the president that vaccines, that vaccinates everybody and gets a lot of new reforms done. But the caveat there is he actually has to get those reforms done. And in order for that to happen, we need wiggle room from Mansion and Cinema, right? Because it's all—it's all—it uh, <laughs> all comes back to you know. I think of it as as their own personal incentives, right? It all comes back to you know nord, normative political behavior, which is if I do this, am I going to be rewarded or punished by it? I don't—I don't see in any situation how Mansion and Cinema are rewarded by their constituents in West Virginia and Arizona, respectively. I don't see how anyone in Arizona or, or West Virginia benefits from being opposed to these reforms. Right. And, and that's the case that we have to make. That's exactly right. And that's the case that Democrats have to make and that they have to make to their constituents because they're only going to get rewarded if they show the benefits of what it does for them. Right? Right. Right. And so if we can get Mansion and Cinema to a yes on some things because they get rewarded for it, that's going to be the sweet spot. So that's what we have to look for. Uh, it's not so complicated if you put it in those terms, isn't it? No, of course not. But I mean, you just have to find out what they want, what their goals are, either politically or uh, politically or ideologically. I don't really understand their behavior. I think that they're actually going to be punished harder by their constituents. I could maybe not mention, but I can absolutely see uh, Kristen Cinema getting primaried for this in 2024 when she's up again. Well, Kristen, we're telling you, you don't have to be primaried. <laughs> you can, you don't have to be. She was, uh, I believe, the first bisexual senator ever elected. Yep. Especially from Arizona. Like, that's pretty historic. And I remember that being a big deal. Uh, that being a big deal in the media after her election in 2018. And it's really sad that her view to most democrats has just gone straight down the toilet and she used to be super much more progressive than she is now which i think she truly is but she's trying to play a long game here for whatever reason but any last words on the filibuster i think that we at this point need to end it uh just to make myself any clearer than i was before we need to end it it's not worth having and to get these reforms out and about into the public during this rare political opportunity is totally worth any backlash that the Republicans could have in store for us later. I'm sure that they have a lot in store for us, but they were going to give it to us anyway, regardless. So 
if, if we're going to win, we have to be the Republicans at their own game and show the Ameri- show the people why this is good for them. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty easy argument to make. <laughs> you would think. Not campaign on it. <laughs> well, with that, we're going to bring you the side dish, which is all about the vaccines and how the rate is way up on vaccinations. Coming up next. For your side dish today, we're going to be talking about the vaccines again, because they're so exciting. The vaccination rates in the United States are way, way up than they ever were. We're doing up to 2 million vaccinations a day. So with with 2 million vaccinations, we're going to be exceeding the 100 million Americans vaccinated in the first 100 days of Biden's presidency as he wanted and, and promised. So we're, we're definitely we're definitely scaling up. I can tell you I've gotten the vaccine. It was super easy and efficient. Not every state is the same. Obviously, every state's got a different procedure that they're doing. But I think now with the Johnson and Johnson vaccines, the one shots being rolled out, it's going to be a lot easier. You don't have to store them at freezing temperatures. It can be done in big parking lots. You know, you just vaccinate, vaccinate and go um, as long as everyone's told what they need to do when they get the vaccine. And Biden just made a deal. So the U.S. will have enough vac- enough vaccinations for every adult who wants them and more, I think, by June or so. So um, this is really, really good news. I'll, I'm going to post a New York Times story about the vaccinations in the show notes. You could read about them there. Brett, what are your thoughts on the vaccinations and uh, the amount that we're doing every day? I think they're looking really good. I'm glad that uh, Biden under-promised and over-delivered. That's exactly what I've always been taught to do as a professional buyer myself. And he's really hitting it out of the park with these vaccines. I'm really happy to see the progress that we've made. Hopefully that we can even do better than than May for everyone ha- being able to get a vaccine. We'll see. Yeah, I think the Johnson Johnson ones are going to be real game changers, right? It's less logistics. It's easier to, to store. It's easier to... to, to you know, you don't have to go back for two doses. Right, exactly. I do think there's one one big thing that's where the Biden administration is going to need to figure out. And that's the marketing of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Because yes, I know the testing was done at different times of between Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson Johnson, but everyone now knows that the Johnson Johnson vaccine has less efficacy than the two other ones, the Pfizer and the Moderna. And if you're a person, you're going to be like, well, I want the most efficient one, right? I think they're going to need to have a comprehensive marketing plan about if you're offered a vaccine, you should get it, no matter which one it is. And even though the Johnson & Johnson one has less efficacy, it has still prevented like 85 or 90% of hospitalizations in the studies that have shown. And all deaths. Yeah, and deaths. All deaths. There has been no one that died from coronavirus since they got the uh, vaccine. Right. So what do you think they should be doing? I, I think they're going to need, really need a really big plan because, you know, the guy down the street's going to hear Johnson Johnson. No, that one's less effective. Right. Why should I get it? And they're going to need to answer that. I think it's a very fixable problem. Uh, you can have popular celebrities get the Johnson 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 and Johnson shots and say how easy it was and how Good it makes you feel to be out of the to be out of the coronavirus fear in some places. Just and you could say that it's going to be a lot easier to spread, give it to a lot of more rural areas that don't have these crazy cold freezers that um, you could just put in the regular refrigerator and it's good for a certain number of weeks. Only one shot 
it's a logistical miracle honestly it's a really good vaccine and if i was offered to get the johnson johnson shot i would absolutely take it of course i would prefer the pfizer the moderna shot because it has higher efficacy but if i was offered johnson johnson right now versus pfizer moderna in a few weeks i would take johnson johnson right now just consider it done i agree with you well i i did i i was fortunate enough to get the moderna shot but if the only vaccine i was offered was the johnson and johnson shot i would have taken it Without question. I also think that the government needs to do a better job of, of explaining what efficacy is and how much it could truly impact how the vaccine works. As I explained, that um, it prevents, I think it was almost all hospitalizations and all deaths. There was no one that got the Johnson Johnson shot that died of COVID. That is extraordinary. And I'm just... Revealing this, I'm a COVID-19 survivor. I ended up contracting COVID uh, back in late January, and I was fortunate enough to have a very easy case. But there are plenty of other people that do not have that type of uh, luck, and they end up getting a severe case. If they, ha if they had the Johnson Johnson vaccine, and if they still somehow managed to get COVID, it would have been an easy case just like mine, and they would have had nothing to worry about. I was basically just bored the entire time at home. And I was still able to be productive. I still worked from home. So that is, uh, that is exactly the benefit of the Johnson Johnson vaccine. It's easy, it's quick, and it's effective. It will stop. If everyone in the world got the Johnson Johnson vaccine, this would be done. We would all be able to go outside again. Brett, do you work for the government? <laughs> I do not. Well, maybe you should. <laughs> you I tried. Should. Yeah. I tried. I would well, be great doing a uh, vaccine logistics for them my real job yeah i mean i think you're exact you're, you're right right this is the type those are the types of messages that the government needs to produce and just think over five hundred thousand americans have died people have lost their loved ones husbands wives grandparents sons daughters don't don't worry about the efficacy just get one of the vaccines just do it if you're not yeah, going to exactly. do it for yourself do it for making sure that you're keeping the memory of people who we lost because of this and, and preventing as many people we, uh, to die in the future. Just get the vaccine, if you can. Just imagine if you were given the opportunity to get uh, Johnson Johnson, and you declined because you wanted to wait for Pfizer or Moderna, and you end up catching COVID in that meantime, where you could have been vaccinated, and you could either die, hopefully not, or someone else that you passed COVID onto unknowingly could get very sick and or die, and it could have been prevented. Just get the Johnson Johnson shot. It's really effective, way more effective than the average flu vaccine that we all get every year anyway. And it's fast and easy, and it prevents you from getting sick. I would take it immediately. Simple as that. Simple as that. Just take the vaccine. Take what you can get. That's, that's America. <laughs> okay, with, with the vaccines, so we got good news on the vaccines. Go get your vaccine if you can if you're eligible. And for the dessert today, we're going to be talking about the American Rescue Plan that just passed the Senate. And we're going to be talking about the high level, what it is, what's in it, and uh, how it could help your families. And that's coming up next. Welcome to your dessert. And it is a very sweet dessert today, because we are talking about the American Rescue Plan. And the American Rescue Plan is uh, the formal name for the, the COVID relief bill that 
Biden has been pushing in the in Congress. Lucky enough for us, it just passed the Senate, which is amazing and a huge monumental win for the Biden administration. I mean, this is a one of the biggest spending bills ever, if not the biggest in the history of the United States, because our economy is in such dire straits and people are really suffering. So the reason I say pass the Senate is because the Senate made a couple of changes and it needs to go back to the House and they need to vote on it and then and then it gets signed into law. So it's not done yet, but it's pretty much all there. So I want to take you through the major buckets of the legislation and what it what it will likely mean. It's not all done yet, but this is probably what's going to be passed and signed into law. So let's let's go through each of them and then we can talk about what comes next for the American Rescue Plan. And if you have any questions, you can always, I'm going to link the, the, the Washington Post article in the show notes. So you can always read everything about this yourself. Number one, unemployment benefits. The package extends the existing $300 weekly unemployment benefit through September 6th, which is a month later than it originally was, as well provides tax breaks on $10,000 in unemployment benefits. The House legislation would have increased the weekly benefit from 300 to 400 but only end a month earlier. So you have a little bit less per month, but it ends later. Stimulus checks. The Senate bill would send $1,400 stimulus checks on top of the $600 payment, $600 payment issued um, back in January. Um, you know, that's most of the cost of this package, roughly $400 billion of that. The Senate version, which is different than the House version, the Senate version caps uh, the stimulus checks as individuals earning $75K per year and couples earning $150K per year. That's when you get the, uh, the 1400 benefit. However, you know, as you know in the, the other versions where if you made a little bit above that cap, you got less and less of it, the phase-out ends at 80K for individuals and 160K for couples. So that means less people are getting this money if, you know, you, you'll, you, will, you won't get $1,200 if you make 90K. If you make 80K, that's the most you can make to get the least amount of stimulus. So it really restricts the amount of people able to get this money, which I think we should always include more people, but, you know, that didn't, didn't happen. There's a child tax credit, which Amer most Americans will receive $3,000 a year for each, each child ages 6 to 17 and 3600 for each child under 6. The provision in the bill would last one year, and it could be uh, direct deposit or it can be installments along the year if you wanted to. There's aid to state and local governments. The Senate package designates $350 billion for state, cities, and tribal governments in U.S. territories. A lot of state governments have been in deep holes in their budgets due to loss of tax revenue, business revenue, all the sorts of revenue. Also shelling out for lots of COVID stuff because the Trump administration didn't do it. So um, this helps try and repair some of their budget shortfalls. Pandemic response. Tens of billions of dollars will fund COVID testing and contact tracing increasing the size of the public health work, health workforce, and of course, for vaccinations. Vaccinations are free, and this is why. <laughs> you know, you, you never want to spend all this money, but then you get free stuff because of it, so it works out. Homeless shelter funding is increased to $510 million. Uh, Most impo very important thing, there are caps on Affordable Care Act premiums. I think it's now you can only get you can only pay premiums that are like eight or ten percent of the plan, which is huge. Lots of education and infrastructure spending. So this package is going to be a huge, huge, huge stimulus to the economy. Brett, what are your thoughts on the American Rescue Plan passed by the Senate? To tell you the truth, I'm a little bit salty that they 
cut down those benefits for people who make over 75k a year and i i don't think that's enough money i think that at the very least it should have been people making over 150k i don't believe that some of these senators understand the cost of living in uh very expensive states like new york and california but overall it's a fairly good plan i think that overall democrats should be very proud of this i definitely would not have uh i definitely would not have uh wanted that individuals earning 75k a year would not be getting the stimulus but that's really the only caveat i could really see yeah i also would have liked you know most importantly what i did not mention because it's not included in the bill is the minimum wage increase right <laughs> or lack thereof right the senate took it out completely or student loan forgiveness, but I think that Biden and Senate Democrats want to do something with that separately. Yeah, I think they do too, and uh, I, I hope they do. So this is going to be a lot of help for a lot of people, and of course, $1,400 is not going to solve everyone's problems. But if you're getting $1,400 $1, and then additional money if you have kids, that's certainly going to help you with rent, it's going to help you with food, especially if you've been out of a job, especially if you have worked a job that maybe his hourly, like in the hospitality industry, and that got hit real hard, this will certainly help pay off some bills and loans and stuff. So it's really going to help a lot of people. So I think we, we can't underestimate how good this bill will be. And, you know, what's next for this bill? Uh, it needs to pass, which I think it's going to pass. It's going to pass, I think, this week, uh, this upcoming week, so the week of March 8th. Um, it's, you know, signed into law. It, A, needs to get dispersed properly. And I think Joe is probably going to put Kamala in charge of this, like Obama put him in charge of the 2009 package. There needs to be marketing about this because the biggest, like we said before, the biggest failure of Democrats was not to market and aggressively promote what's in this bill for the American people. If Democrats, if, I'm sorry, if the American people think Democrats are working for them and helping them, they're not going to vote for a Republican. <laughs> Right? It's that simple. What do you think is going to come up next, Brett? For this bill? I think that progressives are going to begrudgingly vote for it, even though it doesn't include the minimum wage increase, student loan forgiveness, or and that and includes that limit on 75K a year. I think they're going to vote for it anyway. It's going to pass. But I really want to hit on what you said about marketing. You're 100% correct. People didn't really know what was in that 2009 stimulus bill. And that was one of the Democrats' big failures back then. They didn't really tell us what was in that bill. It was so massive and so huge. Republicans always said that there was a lot of pork and extra spending that didn't need it in that bill. And I'm sure that there was, but it probably was mostly very good stuff. And it just wasn't a very good public information campaign on what was in the bill. I think that now that this is going to pass, Democrats uh, need to advertise now what's in the bill, how it's going to be spent, and how, how local people in their area will be able to see the benefits themselves. I agree. I agree. I mean, this is all marketing, right? Yeah, start the marketing process now. The and I wish the Democrats would stop doing this. They always wait until around July of the election year to start their marketing process. No, it's like, can you imagine if uh, can you imagine if any other brand only marketed once every two years, right around the time where they think that you'll need their product? No, they market 
when they think that you won't need the product. So you are in their heads when they do need it. I, I feel like if we haven't already, I mean, we need to start a marketing plan. But I think, I think the Democrats have uh, have <laughs> learned from this mistake, and I hope, really hope they do, because if they if they do not market this correctly, they're going to let the Republicans control the narrative, and then they will they will never end, they will never let them live it down, and then the Democrats are going to go and not campaign on this, and then no one's going to know about it. So it's going to be 2010 all over again. Well, you have more faith in the party than I do, because like you said, it might be 2010 all over again. And keep in mind, we barely beat one of the worst presidents in history during a historically bad economy because of a pandemic that he mishandled himself after how many people had died at that point? At least 200,000, right? After 200,000 Americans have died and thousands of businesses have shuttered. And everyone, everyone in the country's lives have changed. And we still barely beat him. Like, I'm, I'm sorry. That's just bad marketing. It should not have been that difficult to beat him. It, he should have gone down fairly easily with at least a 10% spread nationally. I agree. We almost did not, unfortunately. So I'm, I'm glad we did. <laughs> I'm glad we did. And if, once, if the Democrats ever, if the Democrats do not figure this out, we're going to need someone who definitely does. because. Uh, because right now, this is the most important thing that can happen to legislation is always market, 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 market your success. So that's going to be what we have to look for going forward when this when this American Rescue Plan passes. And who knows if uh, if Democrats can't learn to market, maybe H.R. 1, if passed, can do the work for us. If they're if we're really that bad at marketing, then maybe we just have to have faith in the American people that they'll make the right decision if given the opportunity to in a fair district. I have no faith in the American people, but that's just me. <laughs> I have, I think I have more faith in the American people than I do Democrats, but they're both pretty low. I mean, I think that the Democratic Party at this point just clearly does not have any touch with uh, how things are outside of Washington. But that being said, I think that uh, Democrats are more appealing than Republicans just because they're so terrible. Uh, as I mean, the Republicans are so terrible. And I think that given a fair district, they will make the right decision. But I don't want to bring us back to HR1. Cover the American Rescue Plan pretty comprehensively. And so just, you know, that will be in the news. And so just keep looking out for your stimulus check if you qualify and some of the credits if you qualify for that as well. With that, we are almost done today. And we're going to have your answer for your pre-dinner shot about the bird rule. And we'll bring it to you right now. All right, everybody, you've been patient today and your pre-dinner shot. The question was, what is the bird rule? B-Y-R-D, what is the bird rule? And so the bird rule is named for Senator Robert Byrd, and he was a very powerful senator from West Virginia. He was actually Senate Majority Leader at some point, and it was first adopted in the mid-1980s to limit extraneous provisions included from reconciliation bills. Again, reconciliation is a way to fast-track budget rules. And so his rule was basically like, hey, you can't have all this extra stuff. It's about the budget. So you can't have all this extra stuff included if it's not about the budget. That's essentially what it is. And so it limits what you can include in legislations using reconciliation. And so what that means is measures that wouldn't have any budgetary effect, no changes in revenue, 
measures that worsen the deficit when a committee has not achieved its target, measures outside the jurisdiction of a budget committee, um, like, you know, let's say it was a piece of legislation about social welfare or something like that. It's measures that produce budgetary effect that is incident, you know, it you can't have extraneous budgetary uh, legislation in it, measures that increase the deficit for fiscal years outside the window of the budget that you're working with. So a lot of technical stuff here, right? Any measures that recommend changes to Social Security can't be done with reconciliation. A lot of technical things here, but it's important because when we talk about reconciliation and that simple majority, this rule governs what can and cannot be included in legislation. Like, you know, minimum wage was ruled that you cannot, the minimum wage cannot be put into budget reconciliation. So that's why it was not included in the American Rescue Plan. So that is why this is so important. And that is the bird rule. Oh, it makes total sense. I still think it's ridiculous and it's a terrible way to govern, but that's how it is right now. <laughs> yep, that's that's the rule. So when you hear it, when you hear it in, in the news, that's what they're talking about. So with that, that is all for today's episode. But uh, before you go, a few important things. Number one, thank you, Brett, for joining us today. Thank you for jo- us. You joined me. Uh, thank you for joining Three Course Politics today. And uh, giving your giving your thoughts, your insights, everything under the sun. And Brett's podcast is Leftward Expansion. You can find it on all podcast platforms about the Democratic Party. Brett, any any thoughts about uh, being on the pod today? It was great. Thank you so much for letting me on here. It's been a very long time, and it's been a very long time that we've talked about this. So um, yeah, thank you very much for listening. I hope that a lot of you take a look at Leftward Expansion. It's a great politics podcast. nothing like it out there believe me i checked that's why i started it and uh give us a follow it'd be really great to have you it is it is a good listen and if you want if you're interested please go and check it out um the creator saying it's a great podcast (laughs) of course you think it's a great podcast self-endorsement it is a good podcast the intro and the outro music is done by none other than our guest himself brett hillsberg and if you you probably recognize it too brett you the one who created it the transition music is done by joseph mcdade If you enjoy our pod, please hit the subscribe button on your podcast app. It really, really helps. We would love to have you as a subscriber. You can join the Three Course Potters. I think I, uh, I think that's a new one I've said, but maybe a podcast Potter, whatever Three Courser, whatever you want. Three Course Potters. It it does roll off the tongue. Yeah, we don't know pottery, but we do know pods. Leave us a room review if you love the episode, or if you think we need to improve leave a review too. just be honest and you know be as nice as possible as you can if you have any questions you can email us at threecoursepolitics at gmail.com and with that everybody thank you for listening we hope you enjoy the podcast and come back again soon thank you everyone